The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you want to take your Bibles out, hopefully you have a Bible with you. If not, there should be one in the pew there, right in front of you, in the rack. You can use that one as well. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. We'll be finishing chapter 2 this morning. We'll do a quick recap of the chapter as well. So I'll give you a second there to get to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll remember as we started the chapter, and we're going to actually read the whole chapter this morning together to kind of recap. But in verses 1 through 3, we find ourselves dead in our sin. So look what it says. It says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so Paul lays forth to this church uh, where they find themselves in their sin, but he also includes he says our, he, he, there's like a plural word there talking about the Jews and Gentiles together, how there's no person who can be void of this, who can say that, no, I, I don't, I'm not a sinner or anything. No, Paul's laying out very clearly that everybody finds themselves in the midst of the sin. But he goes on to say in verses four through nine, some good news. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so we find ourselves in this place of sin, really with no hope, with no way out, nothing that we can do on our own. But we see that God steps in here. And God does the work through Christ that we just simply couldn't do. And so Christ completes that work. Christ finishes that work on the cross for us. And so there's that very famous passage that I read in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a grace of God. It's a gift of God that he does this for us. It's nothing that we earn. It's nothing that he says, you know what? I just, you look good. And so you're going to be a Christian. No, it, it doesn't work that way. It's just by his grace, this this free gift that he gives out. Then in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now the good news in this is we see this idea of being a new creation, that we are his workmanship. When he saves us by his grace through faith, he he completes in us this, this new work, and, and, and it's not just a work to sit there and look good, but it's a work to work. It's a work to go and to, to do and to be able to be and to be able to serve him in his kingdom. It says he's prepared these good works beforehand. And so we have the privilege as Christians to be able to go and to, to serve and to glorify God in everything we say and everything we do. Uh, this is some of what Pastor Spencer just said about that class that we want to do for 12 weeks on your vocation and how God uses your work, the everyday work that you do to glorify him and to honor him and how we're called to do that as Christians. This is something that we're able to do because God has saved us. God has freed us from our sin, has saved us from it. Well, then we get to verses 11 to 12. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so the, we get our very first command in all of Ephesians of something that we are supposed to do, that this church here is supposed to do. And Paul tells them to remember. And if you remember, we, we talked about this, how even in our own country, we have things set up for remembering. This weekend is one of them. Many of you, you don't have to work tomorrow. And the reason you don't have to work tomorrow is because tomorrow's been set aside as Memorial Day. And it's that day that we're not just supposed to grill and do things like that. It's a day that we're supposed to remember those who've served in the military and who've, who've given their life for the freedoms that we have in this country. And we think that that's important. Our country thinks that's so important that they set a whole day aside for that. Well, Paul is doing something similar here with the Gentile church, and he's telling them, remember who you were. Okay, remember who you were. You were, you were Gentiles, and so you had this whole sin problem that we talked about in the first three verses but there was even more with you because you were also separated from the people of God. Not only separated from God, but separated from the people of God. Unclean, unwanted, undesired. And so the Jewish people, the Israelite people, wanted nothing to do with these Gentiles. And so they found themselves in a very tough, horrible situation. So there was really two signs of trouble for Gentile people, which we are included in. But then we get to the good news of verses 13 through 18 of which Pastor Spencer preached on last week. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I know Pastor Spencer, when he was formulating his sermon, he focused on those, that word both in there. And that's an important word there because we, we see again, this, this mystery of the gospel being brought forward to us of Jew and Gentile coming together to form the church, the church body. Not that there's, there's not two separate churches. There's, there's one church where all true believers are a part of that. And that's an important thing that Paul is bringing out here. Because today, as we close this chapter out, what we're going to see him talk about in verses 19 through 22 is the consequences now for the church and God's reconciliation of all peoples to bring all peoples together. What is the consequences of this? And we're going to see it unfold in three different images. And these are common. If you've been in church very long, these are very common images. Number one is in citizenship. Number two is in family, the idea of family. And number three is in temple or, or building. And so we'll look at those briefly this morning because Paul will talk about it more in Ephesians. And so I hope one of the things that we'll see together this morning is the benefits of membership in God's church, in his church family, the, the benefits that come uh, with that and that come along with that. And again, that is a church that is centered on Jesus Christ and brought together by him. So a true church that's centered on Christ 
What are the benefits of being a part of that church? Is it just some club, just something else to be a part of, or is there something different there? And we believe there is something different happening there. So look at verses 19 through 22 with me. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Well, the very beginning there of verse 19 is where the citizenship part comes, being a part of a country or a nation. And before diving into verse 19, though, it is important again to remember verse Verse 12, because the, Jew, the Gentiles, you remember, were alienated, completely separated from the people of God. They, they didn't have a place there. They didn't have a place in the temple. They didn't have a place in any of that. There was a complete separation that was taking place there. Yet we see in verse 13, as we already went over a minute ago, that because of the blood of Christ, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it said that Gentiles now were, were brought near because of that blood. So after saying that, Paul uses this imagery of being a citizen in God's kingdom. And he's letting the Gentile believers here know that those who had no place whatsoever in the kingdom of God, the Jewish people, they had no place whatsoever. Now all of a sudden, that not only are they, they allowed in, not only are they allowed into this kingdom as citizens, but they're given all equal rights, all equal opportunities. Everything that was for the Jewish people is now for the Gentile people as well, because of the blood of Christ. And so this is really a radical thought for the Gentile people, because again, they were, they were shunned, and, and we need to remember it went both ways. Israelites didn't like them. They didn't like the Israelites either. But now what Jesus had done is he had brought them together into this kingdom as citizens, as citizens with equal rights and equal privileges. And so Paul paints this picture for us here that this kingdom of God is something that is present. It's something that is, that is current and a radical thing for us to think about. And I, and I want us to realize today is we actually see the kingdom of God being made present in this world again and again. Every time we see him save another soul, every time we see him impart his grace into a person's life and save them. What do we see? We see his kingdom being rushed in again. We see a, another citizen being welcomed in to this kingdom. We see the glory of the kingdom of God being made known to everybody by this grace that God pours out on that person. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul speaks of this again. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes I think we get confused about kingdom and, and citizenship. And again, what, what is being talked about here is how the kingdom of God really transcends all of our thoughts, all of their thoughts of what kingdom really was about. Kingdom was about power. Citizenship was about these different, you know, the different power to be able to overthrow these nations or control these borders or do these different things. And Paul's saying this isn't what it's about. What Christ has done is he's knocked all of this stuff down. The kingdom of God is not about race. It's not about finances. It's not about might or power or anything else that you can think of. The kingdom of God is centered on the work of Christ and the work that he has accomplished. 
the work that he has done and how he is bringing people together in him, united in him to serve him, to glorify him and to honor him. And that's what the kingdom of God is focused on. And so Paul, the first thing that he wants them to know as he's ending this chapter is he wants this church, this Gentile church to know you are equal citizens in the family, in the kingdom of God, equal in all ways. And again, you, you can't say that stuff without being reminded of who Paul is and his background of being an Israelite who was trained as an Israelite, who would have been the number one person to despise all of the Gentiles. And now God is using him to say, no, you're, you're a part of us and, and you have all equal rights and privileges. What an amazing thought that Paul lays out first, but he's not done there because in the second part of verse 19, he doesn't just talk about how you're no longer strangers and aliens or fellow citizens, but it says with saints and members of the household of God. And so he brings up this idea of a household, this idea of a family, and how we are now members and household of this God together. It's really a more intimate picture, I think, than the citizenship thing. Because the citizenship analogy seems big. I, I don't know how you feel, but it feels more intimate for me to be a part of my family than it does for me to be a part of America. I like that I'm a part of America. I like the privileges that I have and things in that, but it's more intimate thinking about my family and the relationship that I have with my family. And Paul brings this up here. He shows us how we are brought near to God so that we're, we're not just saved, but we're, we're brought into his his family, that he, he cares for us. In fact, he's already mentioned this in Ephesians once, and he'll talk about it again a little bit later, but how God has adopted us into his family, that we are not just, not just outsiders who are welcomed in to stay a little while or whatever it might be, but we are legally, fully, 100% his children, his family members. And so within his family, what Paul is pointing out is, listen, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And you guys are all family members. This is what you do. If you're new to church, one of the weird things that you probably hear, it's still, it's always been a little weird for me, but you'll hear people say, brother, sister, brother Tim, brother whatever. And it was like, what are you talking about? But this is where it comes from. It's because we're family members and it's a reminder. You are my brother. You are actually my Sister, we are that close together because of what Christ has done for us. We are, we are family that has been brought together by the Lord. And when we, when we understand this, we have a, a range of people in this family because I'm talking about outside of just our MMBC family, but our church family, the Christian family, we have a range of people, of languages, of socioeconomic standard, all these different things are included in the family of God. And we all share in the privileges of being in God's family. You might ask, what are these privileges? I wrote down just a few of them that I could think about. One is Lord's Supper. You guys did that last week when I was, when I was gone. You got to watch Spencer fiddle around with it and mess it all up. I know he told me all about it. He won't do that again for a while. He's been relegated to the minors for that. But there's, a, there, there's actually a privilege with Lord's Supper. We don't always take it as a privilege. It's sometimes thought of by people as something that's just added on or, or something that's done on Sunday nights. And if we miss it, who cares? But God has given us the Lord's Supper as a great privilege that's only reserved for his family. 
because it's time for us to come together to remember what he has done for us through the body and through the blood of Christ. And we come to remember that and we come to be sealed together in that and united within that. And this is something that God has only given to us as his family members. We've been given baptism to symbolize again what he has done for us. That picture of being dead to ourself and being raised a new creation, a new life, a new workmanship, if you would. In Christ Jesus, he's given that to us as a family. There's other people, there's other uh, religions out there that will do uh, baptism, but it's, it's not this baptism. It's not what God has given us to be a part of. The Bible speaks that as part of the member of God's family, he's given us an inheritance, that we share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And we see throughout scripture that Jesus Christ has been given all things under his feet, and we share in that inheritance with him with our Lord. We've been promised as a family member of God to have joy. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of your family. I don't know if joy is one of the words. I hope, I hope maybe it is. Or maybe you're in a season when it's not. Maybe it ebbs and flows or whatever. But in the Christian family, in the family of God, joy is central. Joy is a central theme in our life because we know that despite everything that might be happening around us, we kind of know why that's happening. God has given us his word and we know that sin is a part of life. We know that suffering and struggles are a part of life, but we also know this as a part of the family of God, this place is not my home. It's not my central home. It's not really where I'm from. I'm, I'm to be with him. And one day I will be with him when there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. And so because of that, I can have joy that's everlasting. I can have joy that's eternal, not just in the future, but a joy that starts right now, even in the midst of difficulties of life. Because I know that nothing in this world can separate me from the love of God through Christ Jesus. And so being a part of the family of God, one of the benefits is joy. We also have eternal life with God. Not away from God, not in a place called hell where we are punished. No, we get to spend life with God forever. And then the other benefit, which hopefully we do as a church family here at MNBC, is you get the love of a family. Again, I don't know your background in family. And it's hard sometimes to talk about uh, God's uh, kingdom as family because some of you come from horrible families. You come from a family where you never felt love, where you never were cared about, where you, maybe you never got to experience that, where family life for you is extremely, extremely difficult. I want you to know that that's not the family of God. The love that we are supposed to feel in the family of God is, again, where we're united and centered on Christ, where we're not judged because of our sin, because we understand we all sin. We understand that we can't overcome that sin. We understand that Christ has done that for us, and now we live in light of that together. And so I love you, honestly, despite of you. I love you because of him. And he's called me to love you. He's called me to care for you. He's called you to care for each other. And so we're supposed to be there as a family for each other. It really makes me feel good as a pastor when I go uh, to different places and I'm talking with people. Maybe they've lost a loved one or whatever it might be. And this happened recently. And they said, man, the church has just been there for me. I'm like, what do you mean? I just mean getting texts and phone calls or, or people seeing me and saying, let me know. Man, I've been thinking about you and I've been praying for you. I care about you. That's, that's what we do. That's one of the benefits 
as being a member of the church family, of being a part of the body of Christ. It really is fascinating. If you go through and you read the Bible, you will find that almost always what we are called to do as fellow Christians is to care for fellow Christians. Now, this might sound weird how I say this, and maybe I'm really going to need to explain myself or say it, but sometimes we get sidetracked thinking we're supposed to love everybody else before we're supposed to love each other. We get sidetracked and we think that's actually our job. Our job is to love the lost and to get them into the church. But it's pretty amazing because the way that Paul always talks about it, the way that scripture always talks about it is you love each other and you watch how I get those people to find that out. You watch how I draw the loss to you because the love that you have for each other. That's the strategy of it. And a lot of times when I talk to people who are lost, who aren't too interested in church, it's because they don't see the church even love each other. It's nothing to do with theology. It has nothing to do with anything like that. It's those people aren't any different than me. Those people, all they do is talk bad about the church or talk bad about this or that, whatever it is. No, one of the benefits of being a part of the family of God is we are to be loving each other and caring for each other. And so if you're one of those people where you had a difficult family, the church should be the perfect family for you, to love you, to show you what it should be like, to to actually care for you and walk with you through hardships, through difficulties, and through struggles. We need to remember, as Paul is talking to us again, where the Gentiles were and where they now are. This church that he is talking to just a few years prior would have been outsiders. They would have been hated. They would have been shunned. They would have been considered unclean, unlawful. They would have been hopeless and they would have been completely lost. But now as Paul talks to them, all the opposite is true. All the opposite is true. It was very helpful for me when I was reading, uh, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson's commentary, Uh, on Ephesians. He was saying every time the Lord removes something from someone who's lost, he replaces it with the opposite. And he gave all of these examples. And I was thinking about that as I was writing this section, because think about it. These Gentile people who are once outsiders, now Paul says they're citizens. These Gentiles who are hated, now he says they are loved. Those who once have been shunned and pushed out are embraced and actually called family members. The people who are unclean, Paul would tell them, oh, you're 100% clean. Those who are considered unlawful, no, the law has been completely filled for you by Christ. You ain't got to worry about that anymore. Christ has fulfilled it for you. Those who are hopeless now have hope that's everlasting, Paul would tell them. Those of you who are lost, not only have you been found, but you now are called sons and daughters of God. This is the God that we serve being a part of this family. This is the God that we get to call on as as father. One who's took all those words that you know once described you, that, that maybe for some of you today still described you, hopeless and lost and unknowing. God can change all of those. All those will become the opposite. You can be found. You can be a part of this family. And how it's by grace through faith, what it said in verse eight. By grace through faith is what this takes. So what we see so far is that Jesus has completely changed everything for this church, this Gentile church. But the good news isn't done as we approach the end of chapter two. You remember the town that they're in? 
is there in Ephesus. And Ephesus was the home of the Temple of Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And so the people here in Ephesus would really know what a temple is. They would really know the grandeur of it. They would know what's happening inside, what's taking place. They would know the purpose of the temple. And so just because they're Gentile peoples, this idea of temple isn't, isn't going to be foreign to them. It's going to be very known of what it is. It's like the main thing. It's the, it's the center of, of town for them. They knew the beauty of it. They knew how much money was put into it. Again, they knew the purpose of it. And so what Paul's about to say to them in verse 20 through 22 uh, really is a revolutionary thing for them. It really would be exciting for them to hear that. And so I hope that we get to feel and understand just some of the excitement as we look at these sections. But look at verse 20. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul goes into this imagery of building and temple. And he says something pretty fascinating there at the beginning about the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I don't want to get stuck on this too long, but he really seems to be speaking of two different offices here that God would use in the New Testament church. And it seems like these two offices were used by God specifically to share about Jesus and to establish a foundation for a church on which we would say, we still stand today. I'm not talking about some apostolic succession where we go back and we find out that Peter was Baptist or something like that. I'm not claiming that, okay? I'm I'm not part of that line. What I'm saying is the foundation that God used when he used those apostles and prophets in the New Testament, they built a foundation for us that we still stand on in the church. And that foundation is their teaching on Jesus and who he was. The work that he had done. That is the foundation that we see here. It's the foundation of the true teaching of Christ. And this is the work that these apostles and prophets laid for us and continued in, in order for us to be strong. And honestly, this is the work of the church still today. Please hear this. We must be centered and founded on this same work of Jesus and his work. Not our work, not on our things, not anything like that. The church needs to be grounded on Jesus and his teachings Why is that? Well, because it goes on. Not just built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, but it says here very specifically, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I've told you many times, I'm not this handy person who builds and does all this stuff all the time. But this idea of a cornerstone is something that's very important when it comes to a building. You see the masons, uh, what they would do back, back a long time ago, I don't know if they still do it today or not, but what they would do is they'd have to take rock And they would have to form that rock perfectly. And the cornerstone was the most important one. It would be on the corner of a building. And it would be what they would get all their measurements off of for the rest of the building. It is what would determine if the building would last or if it would fall. And so they would make sure that they made that cornerstone perfect. They would chisel away at it, do everything that they needed to do to make sure that it was perfect. So that as they laid all the other stones on it, all those other stones would be joined together on top of the cornerstone and they would basically melt together as as one. They would be one in this building so that the building could be strong, could be structured uh, correctly. And what Paul says here, he says, Jesus is this cornerstone. He is the one that brings this whole building together that the Jews and the Gentiles are a part of here. Jesus is the key to all of this. Peter talks about it similarly. He says in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, 
He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to do so. This here is our strength. And we have to remember this as even this local church body, our strength alone, our support, our focus is Christ. When we lose this focus, we crumble. When we lose this focus, we fall. There's no such thing as a church that's not centered on Christ doing good things for Christ. It doesn't exist. Sadly, there's a lot of them out there. And a lot of times the way that we say success is numbers and, and people and all these, you know, all these different things. And that's not always the case because the Bible says very specifically, there will be people who will come and who will preach messages to itching ears, to ears who want to hear certain things. And listen, those draw numbers. And so if you use numbers as your way to determine how oh, this is successful, then we have a problem. We have a problem there, but that's not what it is. We need to stay true to our cornerstone. We need to stay centered on Christ and trust that he will bring about the fruit as we do that for this church family, for the global church, being centered on him. That's why it's so important. I know I say this a lot, but it's so important that we know the word of God that we don't say things like, ah, we don't care about theology and stuff like that. We just, we just do Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean to do Jesus? The only way to know what that means is to know this book, to know what it's saying, to know what it's telling us to do, to, tell, to know what it, it's telling us that we are a part of. And we have to make sure that we are centered and central on that. I've been reading some book on deacons lately, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around that a little bit better. And it's interesting because when you, when you study uh, deacons, people want to go to Acts chapter 6. Because in Acts chapter 6 was one of the first complaints that came up in the early church. And if you remember the, if you remember the complaint, uh, the church was going along just fine. But all of a sudden there were peop some people who were saying, probably rightly so, I'm not being served good enough. Right? There, were, there were some women and they were saying, I'm not being served good enough. And again, the reason that I think this was a uh, actual true complaint and a good complaint was because uh, the apostles said, we need to do something about this. But it's interesting because they didn't say, let's stop everything we're doing and let's care for these people who are hurting. Let's change our strategy here because <clears throat> it shouldn't be like this. They, they didn't do that. It actually says they got together and they came up with a plan. And part of that plan was this. We as the apostles, we as the apostles and prophets, we, we can't leave what we're doing. It's too important. The word of God in prayer is central to this church. Let's assign some men who can go in to take care of these things. And so they did. They went and they took care of those things. And those men went and did that. And they, they did a great job, it seems. And the church kept on going. But in handling the situation the way that they handled it, I think proves this point that we're talking about here. What is central for the church 
is our foundation of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and the ramifications for that on us. And we must stay centered and true to that. We cannot deviate from that. No matter what culture might push us to do, no matter what our own feelings might tell us we want to do, I have no desire that the apostles were good enough men that when they heard the complaint of the women, some of them, their first thought was, I should go take, I could go take care of that. Not a big deal. But no, that was not the best thing to do. Even though they might have felt that way, no, we need to stay centered on prayer and teaching the word of God. That's what our focus needs to be. And we must stay true to that as well. Paul goes on after talking about Jesus as a cornerstone and he tells this church, the Gentiles, you also are being built together. The temple, think about this, the temple that at one time the Gentiles were kept from. Right, This temple that they're not allowed in at this point in time was still there. It still existed. They still could not go in. They still could not be a part. They, they, they weren't even really wanted there. It's closed for them. But what Paul is letting them know is you don't need that temple. You don't need that temple. And again, this is a crazy thing for them to hear. Well, the, the question maybe for them to be, well, then why? What, where do we go? Paul, what do we do? I mean, if, if that's not the temple anymore, should we build one somewhere else? I mean, what, what needs to happen? But Paul says, no, you are being made into the temple. You are the temple. Well, this is a big difference. This is a big change of thought. Uh, I think about uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 that came to my mind when thinking about this passage, because in Hebrew 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews would say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, when these Gentiles heard this and when Paul says this, again, this is what came to my mind. They're a part of this cloud of witness. All the cloud of witness from the Old, Te Old Testament, all those faithful Israelites who, who honored the Lord and were looking forward to the Messiah, all of them, all the Christians, all the Jewish Christians, and now all the Gentile Christians are included in this family. And this cloud of witnesses that were pushing on the Israelites is now pushing them on too. They are part of that family. All the people of Hebrews chapters 11, oh, that faith chapter, this is a part of the Gentile story now. The true church has been united, and it's been united through Jesus, made up of Jew, made up of Gentile alike. One church, and all this through the work of one man, Jesus. Jesus establishes this church. There's no separation, there's no segregation. We all find ourselves as one in Christ. And it is the true church that God dwells in by his spirit. And that's what the interesting thing at the very end, and this is how we'll close. It says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. You remember a conversation that Jesus had during his life in John chapter four with a Samaritan woman at a well. She asks him a question. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is what Paul's talking about. What we're reading Paul tell this church is the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here. God is no longer residing in a local building. He's no longer residing in a structure like he once did in the Old Testament. There's no need for the tabernacle to be built and the Holy of Holies to be put up so God can come and sit on the ark and sit on the mercy seat between the cherub. We don't, we don't need that anymore. Because what happened with the work of Jesus, it says that, that that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And it was a symbol of, we don't need that. Now, what Jesus said here to this Samaritan woman is, is alive and real. God is, it now dwells within the church, dwells within the people of the church. And he shows his glory through the church. And church, remember, that includes you. That includes you and all your ugliness and all your stains and all your messiness. God every day shows his glory by saying, she's mine. He is mine. They are a part of my kingdom. They are a part of my family. They are part of the temple that I am building, that I dwell in. They are mine. And what he does is he proclaims his glory to the nations through you, through us as a church, a bunch of messed up people, a bunch of people who sometimes think we know the answers, but we realize we don't. People who think maybe we have it all together, but we feel every day the true fact that we just don't. But a group of people who are doing our best to love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. When we do that, God continues to show his glory to all the nations. That's why he saved us. We are saved so that now we can go and show off his glory to everybody we come in contact with, to the people that we encounter. We get to tell them the good news of Christ, that if he can save a lost soul like me, he can save a lost soul like you. That the good news is there for you. That by grace, through faith, you can become part of the family of God. You can become part of this building, the place where God resides. I don't know how you feel when you hear this message or when you read this chapter. Because I said this, I think, in an earlier message. The whole Jew-Gentile thing seems so distant. It seems so distant to us that we don't really feel ostracized. You know, we don't, we don't really feel that way. In fact, I would say that the church has actually done some disservice because we've tried to take America and act like we're the new Israel at times in some theology and some lines. And so we almost feel as if we are owed this by God as his people, America. That's not true. That's just not true. We're not owed anything by God. We deserve to be separated. We deserve to be called unclean. We deserve to be away from him eternally. But yet God in his great kindness, God in his great love for us has drawn us near by the blood of Christ. And so I hope that that excites you. I hope that brings within you a sense of 
enjoyment and, and joy and happiness that no matter what you're going through, no matter how many people have despised you this past week, who've been frustrated by you, no matter how things haven't gone your way, if you are a child of God, who cares about that stuff? That stuff is so small compared to the things that we have inherited as being a part of his family, as being a part of his kingdom, as being built up on the cornerstone of Christ. So I hope this encourages you this morning. If you're lost this morning, I hope that God is opening your eyes to the truth of his grace and of his love and that you'll by faith accept that. I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads with me and close your eyes. We're going to have a time for you to, to respond to the word of God. Uh, Pastor Matt's going to come play a song that we'll sing in a moment. But we do this time every week for you to be able to respond to what you have heard. Maybe by praying in your seat, by coming up here if you want, that's up to you. But to respond to God's word however you see fit, by praise, by confession, I don't know. But I trust that God will work in your heart and in your life. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth of it. God, I'm thankful that I don't have to go on some journey to some faraway land to see some building or some place, and it is only there where salvation can happen. It is only there where I can meet with you. God, God, that's not what your word teaches. But God, that through Christ, you have abolished the need for that because Christ has fulfilled everything. So that God, now all around this world, on this day, faithful pastors are preaching the gospel and you're working because you're there. You're present there. And so God, I just thank you for that. I, I praise you for that. God, now as we get ready to sing this song, I pray that we would worship you. I pray that we'd honor you. But God, I pray that we would respond to your word how we should with adoration, with thankfulness. God, maybe some needing to for, repent of sin, be forgiven of sin. God, maybe even someone this morning for the first time believing, trusting in Christ as their Savior. God, I pray that you would do that work in the pews, wherever, even as this day extends, that they be, continue to think and reflect on it. So God, be glorified in the song that we sing now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.